In the last two episodes, we spoke about the battles in the Dutch East Indies, such as the Battle of Makassar Straits, Banjarmasin, and Ambon. We continued the story of the Battling Bastards of Batan, who now finished up the Battle of the Points and the Battle of the Pockets. Then we took a detour to talk about the US carrier raids against the Marshall and Gilbert Islands, with Halsey taking a lot of the limelight. Then in the last episode, we went over the entire battle for Singapore. The island defenders, though outnumbering the forces of Yamashita 3 to 1, eventually crumbled. A combination of poor organization, loss of morale, and well, in the words of Yamashita, his bluff ended up taking the Gibraltar of the East. Now that Singapore was in the hands of the Japanese, the IGN could now push harder into the Dutch East Indies. And today, that's just what they'll do. This episode is the invasion of Sumatra. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I need to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much more, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. I recommend my new episode on Japan during World War I. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Back at the offset of the war, Japan's 55th Division invaded Thailand and then launched an invasion of Burma from it. The attack came westwards, coming through the Kakarik Pass, forcing the 16th Brigade, commanded by Hutton, to retreat northwest. Wavell sent word to Hutton, stating, quote, Cannot understand why, with troops at your disposal, you should be unable to hold Moulmain and I trust you will do so." End of quote. From the very start of the conflict, Brigadier Smythe insisted that the only possible defense of Rangoon was from a position on the west bank of the Singtang River. He did not expect he would have enough time to prepare a substantial defense, and by the time of the expected Japanese assault, he had hoped to be reinforced by the tanks of the 7th Armored Brigade, which was expected in Rangoon by the 21st of February. The ground west of Sitang consisted of dried paddy fields and was therefore much more open than the jungle and thus was better suited for tanks, allowing them a decent arc of fire and room to maneuver. On January the 23rd of 1942, Hutton disregarded Smythe's plan and told him to hold Moulmain at all costs. On the night of the 30th of January, 
8,000 Japanese attacked and easily overwhelmed the 2nd Burma Brigade, defending Moulmain on the eastern bank of Selwyn. Well, the Japanese advanced so fast that they came close to encircling the 2nd Burma Brigade on the southeast side of the Selwyn River near Moulmain, and they too would have to retreat. The 2nd Brigade ended up escaping with the use of a ferry, but at the cost of most of their equipment. The Battle of Moulmain had brought the Japanese 5,000 drums of aviation fuel that would enable their air force to take action quickly. The military setback from the offset of the Burma campaign revealed poor training and ill preparation for the defenders. James Lunt, serving with the 4th Burma Rifles, noted the training of 1940 was, quote, There was no tactical instruction of any kind. We attacked in line up, the gentle slope, the commanding officer galloping to and from as he adjured us to keep our dressing. Afterwards, during the critique, he told us that British officers should always lead the line, waving their walking sticks. I wonder what the Japanese were being told around the same time. Perhaps they did not carry around walking sticks? End of quote. The 17th Division was falling back northwards towards the Sitang River. Wavell decided the new plan of action was to hold this point while fresh troops were being shipped to Rangoon from India. On February the 6th, Wavell began screaming orders to the officers of the 2nd Burma Brigade, telling them, quote, To take back all you have lost. It seems Wavell was not aware how outclassed some of his forces on the ground were at this point. Now after taking Moulmain, General Aida decided to continue the invasion of Burma by February the 7th. Brigadier Cowan Punch Smythe had asked permission from Hooten to allow his forces to retreat behind the Sitang River, but as we said, he was refused. Smythe called this a disastrous decision, but noted it probably was influenced by Hooten's superiors. Regardless, General Aida's forces outflanked and set up roadblocks against two Indian battalions that tried to delay them at Martaban. The situation became so desperate, the Indian battalions ended up bayonet charging some Japanese roadblocks to escape the encirclement and would spend two full days running through some really thick jungle. From February the 10th onwards, Aida's men began to make several night raids against Indian-held positions in the Kuzaik Pa'an area. By February the 12th, the defenders had been pushed back, leaving Smythe's position at the Bilan River very vulnerable. General Aida saw the situation for what it was and took to exploiting it. On February the 13th, the 214th Regiment advanced past the Bilan River, 10 kilometers north of the town of Bilan, while the 215th Regiment outflanked the Indian position held at Dienzaik near the Yinan River. Smythe's forces were outnumbered and fell into a series of confused skirmishes. 
These skirmishes were fought in the thick jungles, and Smythe's men held firm, not giving any ground. Then on February the 18th, British High Command discovered the Japanese were about to outflank Smythe's forces. General Hutton traveled to the front lines to get a better picture of the situation, and upon seeing everything for himself, he agreed with Smythe's assessment to withdraw past the Sitang River. The 16th and 48th Indian Brigades began to march to Kiako through some really thick jungle terrain. I say that word thick jungle quite often in this, but I just want to emphasize it's, it's really rough what they had to go through in Burma. After everything was said and done, Smythe had this to say about the Battle of Bilen River. It is as follows, quote, The 17th Division gave everything it had at Bilen and surrendered no ground to the Japanese. But as the pressure increased, every single reserve had to be thrown into the battle, and even then we could not prevent strong parties of the enemy turning our flanks. End of quote. Well, as valiant as the defenders were at Bilan River, it would prove to be much more of a disaster than Smythe could have ever imagined. For by not withdrawing to Sitang earlier, as he had suggested, the forces would soon fall into quite a blunder. But for that, you're going to have to tune in next week. Over two weeks ago, seems like a long time when I think about it, we spoke about the fall of some of the last key cities and airfields in Borneo, the Celebes, and Mulakas. The Japanese now held enough adequate airfields within the range necessary to commence air operations against their largest objective in the Dutch East Indies, that of Java. Yet, there still lied one other offensive to be made before they began their assault on Java. They first wanted to take southern Sumatra, which held the important airfield of Palembang. With the fall of Singapore, the Japanese now had pierced the Malay barrier for the first time, and with this they could now begin their offensive against Sumatra. Now the Japanese had been performing air raids over Sumatra's airfields of Midan, Pekanbaru, and Palembang since late December. The Japanese had also captured the Anambas Islands, and by January the 26th, set up their air bases there to conduct operations against Sumatra and Java. They were planning on launching the 2nd Parachute Raiding Regiment from Tishan Shidan over Palembang Airfield, while most of the 38th Division would land on Banka Island and go up the Musi, Saleh, and Tilang rivers to attack Palembang. Once Palembang fell, they could then seize Martapur and Tanjung Karang airfields alongside the oil facilities around Talang Ambab and Limau. The first landings would be carried out by two battalions of the 229th Regiment, departing from Kam Rambe on February the 9th, followed by the rest of the 38th Division two days later. The 38 Division's landings were to be supported by a strong fleet commanded by Vice Admiral Ozawa Jizaburo, mainly consisting of six cruisers and 11 destroyers from the 2nd Fleet and the Southern Expeditionary Fleet. 
On the northern part of Sumatra's coast were 2,000 Dutch troops with a force of 118 Royal Air Force aircraft, including 40 Blemheim bombers, 30 Hudson light bombers, and 48 hurricane fighters. The Air Force on Sumatra fought the Japanese aircraft based out of Kahang Airfield in southern Malaya during quite a few hard-fought battles. By February the 13th, only 15 hurricanes remained serviceable. But overall, the force proved formidable, and they exacted a kill ratio of 1 on 1 against the Japanese. On February the 13th, the Yangtze River gunboat HMS Li Wo had escaped Singapore and battled four Japanese aircraft attacks, and then, unfortunately, ran right into a Japanese amphibious fleet. The gunboat took to action and bravely attacked the troop transports armed with only its single 4-inch gun and two machine guns. For over an hour and a half, Lieutenant Thompson Wilkinson, commander of the HMS Li Wo, battled against the IGN transport fleet, setting one transport on fire and ramming another with his doomed warship. Only 10 out of his 80 crew which included civilians from Singapore who were fleeing, would survive. Wilkinson went down with the ship and was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross, the only one awarded during the Dutch East Indies campaign. The Lee Wo incident, as it's known, had made a small dent in Oizawa's amphibious assault. On February the 12th, 3,000 troops of the 229th Regiment and a battalion of the 230th were on 21 transports coming from Kanran Bay, and ahead of them were 350 paratroopers. Now the Dutch set up four territorial commands on the island of Sumatra. There was the North Sumatra Territorial Command, with three battalions in Kot Taraja, one battalion and one company in Medan, and one company in Sabang. Then there was the West Sumatra Territorial Command, with one battalion and two companies in Padang, one battalion in Fort Dukok, and two companies in Padang Badjang. Then there was the East Territorial Command, with one battalion and two companies. And lastly, there was the South Sumatra Territorial Command, which held one battalion and one company at Palembang. Overall command was under Major General Rulof Overaker, and at Palembang there were 2,000 men under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Vogelsang, with some 2,000 British reinforcements at Jambi. By February the 14th, the RAF was, as I said, down to 15 Hurricanes, 35 Hudsons, and 40 Blemheims. On February the 15th, Rear Admiral Dorman led his ABDA strike force of five cruisers and ten destroyers to meet the Japanese invasion force. Unfortunately, his ABDA strike force ran into some Japanese float planes from the carrier Ryujo. Eleven Kates and 23 Injas began to rain hell upon Dorman's fleet. The executor received light damage and some of the U.S. destroyers got hit. Dorman recalled the blunder at the Battle of Makassar Strait, and he decided to pull out this time. 
While only minor damage was done to his force, it was the second embarrassing defeat at the hands of the Japanese Air Force for Dorman. His force turned back to South Sumatra. This in turn led the Abda Strike Force to withdraw to Java eventually, which was expecting its own attack very soon. The RAF tried to also hit the IJN invasion force, but this amounted to only one transport, the Otawa Maru, being sunk. By February the 16th, all remaining ABDA personnel were back in Java, or India. The Japanese paratroopers, led by Colonel Kume Saichi, began dropping over Palembang airfield covered by the 3rd Air Division. The slow-moving Japanese Ki-56 transports managed complete surprise over the airfield because the RAF had been sent out to attack the incoming IGN invasion force and could not be reached by radio to come back and help. 260 paratroopers landed at Pankalambatang airfield, called P-1 by the British, which I, I guess it's because they could not pronounce it either like myself that's a really difficult one to pronounce i do apologize i try to do my best anyways a second wave of 100 paratroopers landed shortly after them near the refinery just beside p1 defending p1 were 150 british anti-aircraft men 110 dutch soldiers and 75 british soldiers the Japanese benefited from strong air support and quickly defeated waves of incoming Dutch soldiers, inflicting heavy casualties upon them, and captured Plajot's oil refineries. The airfield itself held on for much longer, but by midnight, the defenders eventually were ordered to retreat to Oosthaven by General Overeker. Ozawa's force arrived intact, but when the landing crafts began to land at the mouth of the Musi River, their Japanese Air Force escort had to withdraw. At that moment, in the foggy morning, the RAF made some more attacks and ended up sinking 21 landing crafts, killing hundreds of the Japanese. The hurricanes proved to be the most effective when they attacked the unprotected landing crafts. At this point, the advance party of the 38th Division had also entered into the Mentok anchorage, as 60 paratroopers were dropped to help with mop-up operations at Palembang. The advance party seized Mentok's airfield as the RAF continuously dropped bombs upon them and strafed them. Now they would go up the Musi, Tilang, and Sale rivers to hit their objectives. In the meantime, the Dutch were busy destroying the oil dumps and rubber dumps, and ferries along the Musi River. The defenders of P-1 were making a quick retreat as amphibious forces coming up the Musi River met up with the paratroopers at P-1 and its refinery. By the morning of February the 15th, Moivel began an evacuation of Oosthaven where several ships at its harbors began to take 2,500 RAF members almost 2,000 British infantry, 700 Dutch infantry, and 1,000 civilians away. Twelve ships would take them all away by February the 17th as their escorts shelled the harbor facilities and oil tanks they had left. 
The Japanese consolidated their position at Palembang, and by February the 16th, all the Allied aircraft were now en route to places like India. Also on the 17th, General Saino ordered a Tanaka detachment of the advance party to march south towards Tangjung Karang. En route, they seized the Talang Jamar oil field, and by the 19th, they had captured the Martapura airfield with relative ease, not meeting much resistance. That same day, the Japanese had completed the conquest of Banka Island. The Kanki detachment were then sent to capture Lahat, Bankakulu, and Jambi. Furthermore, the capture of Palembang's airfield allowed the first Japanese Army Air Force units, a base to launch attacks on Batavia in West Java. On February the 19th, the first of many raids to come was carried out on Butinzorg by five Lilies and 19 Oscars. The next day, another raid was made by 12 Lilies and 36 Zeros. The raids were met by squadrons of Brewster Buffaloes, and the performance of the defenders mirrored what was occurring countless times in other places like Malaya. Pilot Tiedman said of this moment, quote, We could not reach the bombers properly. We did not shoot down any but got tangled up in huge dogfights with the Zero Fighters. End of quote. Tiedman's airfield at Bangdong was smashed by bombers. Six aircraft there were damaged beyond repair. Tiedman and two of his colleagues were shot down, and Tiedman recalled, During the action, I was hit badly several times. I remember the first hit I received came from a cannon shell hitting my right wing, where I could see a huge bullet hole. I was shocked to death at first. Later, I got used to the sound of hitting bullets. On another occasion, Lieutenant Simons told Tiedman after they had landed that, quote, All of a sudden... He had seen the Jap climbing up from below behind my tail, opening up on me at close quarters. Certainly, I was lucky that time and my armor plate behind my seat took the beating as we later discovered. End of quote. By early March, the Dutch would be down to just a few buffaloes. They were forced to fight against better aircraft and hopeless odds number-wise. By February the 20th, the Japanese crossed the Mondai River and approached Tangjung Karang. By that point, most of the Dutch defenders had been evacuated from Oosthuizen back on February the 17th. The invaders could only catch with their eyes the rearguard of the defenders as they sailed away on two gunboats. The Tanjung Karang airfield was captured by the Japanese by February the 21st, and they soon went to work for air operations against Java. On this day, the Kanki detachment also departed Palembang and captured Lahat on the 22nd, Limbuk Lingao on the 23rd, and after crossing the mountain range, Benkulu on the west coast of the 24th. Jambi would fall by March the 4th, 
concluding the invasion of southern Sumatra. The operation was a great success. The Japanese had captured several oil facilities and airfields. With the loss of Sumatra, Java was basically now surrounded, and the decision was made to effectively dissolve Abdicom, since Java would be better off defended by General Deporten's command solely. In the meantime, the Japanese still looked to capture a few more territories, such as Bali and Timor. These were the last of Java's Dao. To invade Bali, the Kanamura Detachment of the 48th Division, commanded by Kanamura Matabe, was selected. The invasion force would consist of two transports, escorted by one cruiser, the Nagara, and seven destroyers. Admiral Hilfik soon discovered the operation against Bali and met with Dorman on February the 18th to devise a battle plan against the incoming IGN force. During late February, Dorman's fleet was going through hell. Since mid-February, Vice Admiral Choichi Nagumo's carrier task force had been prowling the vicinity. The Kido Butai was overwhelmingly more powerful than anything the Allies had in the Pacific let alone these embattled islands in the Dutch East Indies. On February the 19th, the Kirobutai's air fleet, alongside land-based aircraft from Kendari and Ambon, would smash the seaport of Darwin in Australia, something often referred to as Australia's Pearl Harbor. Now, unfortunately, I can't talk about the raid on Darwin in this episode, because there's going to be a future episode dedicated to it. And yours truly is the guy who wrote it for Kings and Generals. So there will be a YouTube episode dedicated to it, as well as a podcast that will be dedicated to it in the future. And I'm sure it'll be very good. So just wait. Needless to say, the Allied air power in the area was greatly diminished, leaving Dorman feeling quite blind. The IGN were enjoying their air reconnaissance, while the Allied fleets had to constantly be on the move lest they be caught by aircraft and bombed without mercy. This all caused a significant psychological effect on the sailors. By the end of February, many officers and crew were extremely exhausted. They were plagued by poor communications, failed equipment, inadequate port facilities, and refueling was becoming a real problem. Storage tanks in places like Surabaya and Batavia were running dry, and the oil workers in most places had fled. Often ships were half-empty on fuel and partially supplied with ammunition or torpedoes. All the while, the insidious Radio Tokyo blasted the Allies with the infamous Tokyo Rose. In her California accent, she would say things like, Oh, you poor American boys, your ships are swiftly being sunk. You haven't a chance. Why die to defend foreign soil, which never belonged to the Dutch or British in the first place? For those who've never heard of Tokyo Rose, it's a very interesting character during the Pacific War. And she is not a single person, but actually a few. The main woman who took up the mantle was named Aiva Toguri, a U.S. citizen who went back to Japan to visit her sick aunt just as Pearl Harbor occurred. As you can imagine, she was unable to get back home, 
and faced scrutiny for her U.S. citizenship while in Japan. But she spoke English well and was quickly recruited for a job as a broadcaster for a 75-minute propagandist program called The Zero Hour. It was basically a bunch of skits, news reports, and popular American music. Her producer was an Australian army major named Charles Cousins, who was captured after the fall of Singapore. It is alleged that Iva demanded of Charles and others of the crew that no anti-American propaganda should be scripted, and it is also argued that no such propaganda existed in the scripts she personally read. She would often refer to the American audience as my fellow orphans, using American slang and playing the very best U.S. hits at the time. Her stage name was Anne, or Orphan Annie. After the war, she was put on trial for treason, and it was the costliest and longest trial at that point in American history. She was found guilty on a single charge, that being that on a day during October of 1944, she had spoken into a microphone concerning the loss of ships. Her attorney lambasted the verdict as not having strong enough evidence. Regardless, she would spend six years in prison and was released in 1956. In 1977, U.S. President Gerald Ford gave her a presidential pardon which furthermore restored her U.S. citizenship. I don't want to take too much of this episode up with this, because of course there's so much more to the story. She was one of a, a handful of women who were, quote, Tokyo Rose. And there was propaganda during this uh, segment of the Zero Hour. Although, as I had said, it is alleged that Annie did not partake in such. But regardless, the reason why I bring this up is because it actually had a significant influence in the Pacific War. Try to put yourselves in the shoes of the sailors, for example, that are putting up with almost being continuously bombarded every day by Japanese aircraft while they're sailing around. And they would turn on their radios and get lambasted by Tokyo Rose on a daily basis. Oh, and if you think they were not listening to this channel, you'd be very, very wrong. Most of the Americans, for example, loved it. They knew it was propaganda, of course, but many stated after the war that it was great entertainment because, I mean, there, if you were far enough out there and Tokyo was the closest radio station, it's the only one blasting American music after all, so it was entertaining. But a lot of the men who did polls after the war said that they secretly thought that Tokyo Rose was on their side, interestingly enough. Anyways, back to the story. After the fall of Singapore, Admiral Yamamoto, directing his command from battleship Nagato in Hashirajima Anchorage, was determined to not give the Allies a moment's rest. He insisted early on on seizing Java, and he predicted the Allied sea and air forces in the East Indies to be far too feeble to endanger the IJN. He would feel so confident in this that he would later send Nagumo's carrier force away into the Indian Ocean to harass Allied shipping. As we have seen quite a few times during this podcast series, while the Allies do on occasion make air attacks on some of the IGN convoys, 
they usually don't amount to very much. Alongside this, the submarine forces of Helfrich might have made some real gains against the IGN in the early weeks, but the US submarines certainly proved useless. The issue, of course, for the US was their torpedoes, which were catastrophic. The IGN freighter Arizona Maru was struck by one in early February, and one of her officers recalled, It seemed to pass along the hull, scraping the keel, and continued on the other side, emitting great clouds of bubbles before finally sinking to port. End of quote. This torpedo problem would plague the U.S. submarine campaign for the entire first year of the war. To make matters worse, the Abda strike force of Dorman faced numerous logistical issues simply because of their makeup. The multinational character of the force with its makeshift command structure was hampered by things like Dorman's ability to speak English. One of the American destroyers, skippers, described the communication problems as farcical. The strike force had been issued no signal books and no common codes. Thus, Dorman's flagship would often communicate using blinker lights in plain English. But during the smoke and confusion of a battle, well, this was extremely impractical. One of the largest issues they faced was the fact that many of their warships were scattered performing actions and operating at different naval bases. Thus, the decision was made for the attack on the IGN to develop in three waves with each group attacking separately against what was believed to be a very large IGN force. The first group consisted of the Dutch cruisers Dieruta and Java, the Dutch destroyers Cortanar and Piet Hein, the American destroyers Pope and John D. Ford, and this force would be coming from Tilajap and would enter the Badong Strait from the south. The second group was the Dutch cruiser Tromp, and the American destroyers Stewart, Parrot, John D. Edwards, and Pillsbury, coming from Surabaya and Rantai Bay. The last group would be nine Dutch torpedo boats coming from the south. Despite the speed of their planning, the IGN had already entered the Sanor anchorage by midnight, successfully dropping the troops on Bali in the early hours of February the 19th. The Kanamura detachment headed west and captured the Den Pasar barracks and an airfield at Kuta, with almost zero resistance. Thus, Bali was effectively neutralized by the week's end and would be captured entirely in little time. But the Japanese warships did not go unmolested during this operation. On February the 19th, Four destroyers and a transport were hit by 13 American B-17s and seven Douglas A-24s coming from Java. The transport Sagami Maru received a hit in her engines, and now the IGN feared they would lose her. So the destroyers Arashio and Michoshio escorted her back to Makassar, while the two other destroyers Asashio and Oshio remained in the Sanor anchorage to look after the other transports until it got dark. Shortly before midnight, Dorman's two cruisers HNLMS De Ruta and Java, alongside four other destroyers, made it into the Bandung Strait. It was a poor plan, 
and it was also poorly executed due to the slowness of the Dutch cruisers. The first wave of the ABDA strike force could not find the IGN warships. Thus, Java opened her searchlights and began to fire star shells at what looked like to be silhouettes near the Bali shore. Those silhouettes turned out to be the Oshio, which alerted the other Japanese destroyers, who all began to charge the invading force. Because of the slowness of the Dutch cruisers, the Japanese destroyers managed to cross their T immediately with ease. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term crossing the T, basically try to visualize a warship uh, facing another warship. If both ships are facing each other face to face, they can only fire upon each other using the guns at the front of their ships. Most ships have a ton of guns on their sides. These are their broadside guns. So if one ship is facing the broadside of another ship, that ship's broadside guns are going to rain absolute hell upon that ship, while that ship can only retaliate with a few frontal guns it has. Thus, it's a very unequal battle. That is crossing the T. Java and Diruta fired madly at the charging destroyers, claiming multiple hits, but in reality, the hits did little to no damage. Asashio managed to score a few hits on Java's port midsection, but this also did not do much damage. The Dutch cruisers then lost contact with the enemy, believing they had inflicted major damage, but both began to retire northeast through the Lombok Strait. They had only battled for like 10 minutes. Meanwhile, their screening destroyers, three miles behind them, now ran right into the Asashio and the Oshio. The Asashio was in a head-on confrontation with the Pite Hein, forcing it to zigzag to try and save itself madly. Seeing the ship so isolated, the Japanese destroyers began to concentrate their salvos upon it as Pope and John D. Ford tried to speed up to save it. At 11.10pm, the Pite Hein launched torpedoes, but while maneuvering, she received a shell right into her engine room, putting her dead in the water and burning brightly on fire, a perfect target. Both the Oshio and Asashio saw the target for what it was, and together launched nine torpedoes at the drifting destroyer, smashing her to pieces and sinking her instantaneously. Peithein's commander, Captain Lieutenant Kompf, and his fellow officers posthumously received medals for gallantry. After the loss of the Peithein, Pope and John D. Ford immediately went on the defensive and launched their last torpedoes and shelled the enemy as they made their own escape north through the Bandung Strait. Luckily for the Allies, the Oshio and Asashio misidentified another and actually began to shell each other, doing limited damage by mistake. As the incident was being reported, Admiral Kubo ordered the Arashio and Michishio to leave their transports that they were escorting and return back to the strait to help. They made it just as the first Abda strike wave left, missing the battle, but came just in time to run straight into the second Abda wave. The second Abda wave arrived three hours later, around the southern tip of Bali, at around 1.09 a.m., the four destroyers and cruiser HNLMS Trump K-1 
commanded by Captain J.B. de Meister, were challenged by a flurry of green lights which were unreadable. Captain de Meister hesitated. This situation kept occurring with a multinational strike force. But Captain Binford, with the destroyers, knew surprise was crucial to naval engagements and ordered his destroyers to launch torpedoes to port at the green lights. USS Stewart, Parrot, and Pillsbury each fired torpedoes, but the Japanese easily outmaneuvered all of them. Soon the Japanese force had disappeared into the night, and a deadly game had begun. Both sides stalked another when Stewart sighted the Asashio and Oshio. Stewart fired star shells, torpedoes, and then salvos. The Japanese destroyers evaded the torpedo spread and return-fired salvos at Stewart. A ricocheting shell killed a sailor and wounded an officer aboard the Stewart, and then she got hit directly into her steering engine room, losing her control. The result was pure chaos. The parrot almost smashed into the Stewart. Stewart eventually regained control, but the chaos had caused the entire formation to stop going after the transports at the anchorage, and now they were heading for the north entrance of the strait. The HNLMS Trump then turned its large searchlight on, which made her a target for the two nearby Japanese destroyers. Trump was battered with a rain of shells from the Asashio, which hit her torpedo tubes, bridge, and main fire control director. Trump avoided a torpedo spread from the Oshio, which would have sunk her. But during the barrage, Lieutenant of First Class Ritzema van Eek and Sub-Lieutenant Kriesveld both died to salvo fire, with another 30 men wounded. Trump, having lost its fire control director, was unable to effectively fire back, so she barely managed to inflict much damage on the Oshio or Asashio. From there on, the second wave proceeded north to withdraw from the strait, as Trump's captain figured they were most likely done at this point. Unfortunately, it was at this moment the Arashio and Michishio arrived right in front of the fleeing allies. Heading southwest, the Arashio and Michishio accidentally found themselves in a tight spot. The John D. Edwards and Stewart were right at their starboard with Trump and Pillsbury to their port. Stewart's opened her searchlights and launched torpedoes followed by salvos. Thus, the Michishio was stuck in a crossfire now, attempting to turn north when it received crippling salvos from the John D. Edwards. Michishio's engines were smashed, and soon she was dead in the water, with over 96 casualties mounted. She was raked by other salvos, but luckily the Allies were not stopping to finish her off and continued on their way out of the strait. After the crossfire was done, both sides continued on their respective courses at high speeds, searching for signs of another. The Japanese continued to search south for more enemy ships, and three hours later the third wave of seven torpedo boats would arrive. The torpedo boats saw the signs of a heated battle and entered the strait ready to give the enemy hell. But no enemy was to be found. It turns out the Japanese had finished their operation and simply made their own escape after the engagement with the second Abduf wave. 
To add insult to injury, upon arriving back at Surabaya Dock, the steward rolled as the dock was being drained, and it severely damaged her. The damage was so bad, the steward would not be repaired before the fall of Java, and was later blown up inside the dock. Tromp was severely damaged and required a lot of repair work, and thus had to go all the way to Australia for it. This was known as the Battle of Badong Strait, and it was an absolute disaster for the Abda command. The Japanese suffered only severe damage to a single empty transport and one destroyer. It was absolutely humiliating. The two Allied waves were more than enough to defeat the Japanese. But instead, the Abda strike force lost a destroyer and had another destroyer and light cruiser severely damaged. In all, the battle was a significant victory for the IGN. The Asashio and Oshio had shown excellent ability in thwarting a much larger enemy force. The destroyer Pete Hein was sunk, and other Allied ships were severely damaged. Dorman had failed again to score a victory against the Japanese due to poor planning. Dorman's battle plan showed poor tactical judgment by placing too much reliance on surface gunfire. Combined with this was the darkness of the night which allowed the Japanese to press their superior torpedoes more so. The Dutch, unlike their American allies, trained for night combat frequently. Yet still, the Japanese outperformed them. The Type 93 Long Lance Torpedo of the IGN was by far the best in the world at this point for night surface action, and the Battle of Badung Strait proved it. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if you are still hungry for some history-related content, please give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube. If you really like, why don't you go check out one of my newer episodes, which is a review of films that depict Pearl Harbor. It's quite an interesting episode. Give it a look. It'll mean a lot to me. With the fall of Bali, the Japanese had thus completed their central thrust. Java was now cut off from any possible source of help from Australia. In his diary, Yamamoto's chief of staff, Admiral Matome Ugaki, wrote, The enemy must know well that Java is doomed by our capture of Bali, the paradise of the world, only 22 kilometers away. Bali's loss was indeed a death blow to the defense of Java. The Japanese seized Denpasar airfield on the southern coast of Bali, severing the air route between Australia and Java, ensuring that ABDA would not receive any further air support. Now Japanese planes would dominate Java, combined with air power coming from southern Sumatra. Now that the central thrust was done, the Japanese would commence their eastern thrust, which was against Timor.